Take your Bible with me today, if you will, and open to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the third message in a six-part series entitled, Things They Didn't Tell You About Parenting. And we come to a passage of Scripture that's 3,500 years old. You say, Pastor, can I learn anything and apply anything from a 3,500-year-old passage? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, if you don't do so, you're making a grave error. I want to read beginning in verse 4 down through verse 9, and then we're going to come back and look at these verses in just a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, we come back to this subject yet again this week and for the next uh, three weeks after this, just to lay down the instruction that's found in the Word of God that we won't hear anywhere else. We're not going to hear the teaching of the Bible anywhere else when it comes to the rearing of our children. And yet, Lord, you're the one who created life. You're the one who gives us our children, and you're the one who has given us the right instructions in your Scripture for us to raise our children. And I pray, God, that you'll give us an understanding heart today, guide us into the truth. Lord, I want to make this as clear as I possibly can as I continue to equip parents uh, to be able to raise their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by giving you just a little bit of background about uh, Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. This is Moses' farewell address to the nation. By the time that you get to the end of this book, uh, you see that God lets him go up on Mount Nebo. He gets to look over uh, the promised land that he's going to give to the children of Israel. But Moses isn't allowed to go into that land. Moses dies and God buries his body. Nobody knows where it's buried, but God buries his body. And Joshua then uh, comes to authority and Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land. But when you think about what is going on in this chapter, this is Moses telling the children of Israel about this land of plenty where God is going to take them. But he's also reminding them that this land is a land where there are giants, there's warriors, there's enemies, there's a culture, a faith, morals, there's values that are completely different than anything that they have seen or they have known. And so as he prepares them, Moses, as he prepares them to enter into this land, you might have thought that what he would talk about is a military strategy or maybe an economic stabilization plan or some kind of governmental structure. But instead, what he talks about is the family. He talks about obedience to their faith, to their God, and he talks to them about passing along that faith to their children. So that this passage confronts us with this challenge that all of us have with raising our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Whether you recognize this or not, I hope you recognize it, but whether you do or not, there's a war in America on the truth. The real issues we face aren't about the left or the right, they're about the truth. We live in a postmodernistic society, and everybody's truth is the same. Everybody has a right to their own truth. You see how silly that sounds? Everybody has a right to their own truth. Everything is relativistic. 
And there's a war, not so much about the left or the right, it's on the truth itself. And the best means Moses will give to us here is to instill the truth in the future generation through the family, through the family. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, we're given what is called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word means hear, but it means by inference to pay attention, to respond, to obey. And the Jewish people quote the Shema, at least the Orthodox Jewish people quote the Shema twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, so that they are constantly being reminded to whom they belong and to whom they are supposed to give their allegiance, who they are supposed to follow. And this, uh, this Shema reminds us that our responsibility is to shepherd our children in a personal relationship with the Lord, that their hearts will be attuned to him and their hearts will be committed to him. There's four things in the Shema that you might just want to note that it teaches. First of all, it teaches that there is a God. Second of all, it teaches that there's only one God. It teaches that that God is the Lord and it teaches that the Lord is to be our God. And the Shema teaches those four very specific things. Here's the thing about teaching our children about God. If we give them the world but lose the battle for their souls, we've lost the war. If we give them this world and everything that this world can provide, but lose the battle for their souls, passing on the truth to them, we really have lost the war in the process. And the way to avoid losing the war, the way to pass along the faith is through the means of the family. I want you to notice in the context of of what we read here a few moments ago, that Moses comes back to the family again and again. Just turn a page back in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Listen to what he says. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them, now listen, well with them and with their children forever. Or just go back to chapter 6 again and a couple of verses before where we started reading. Listen to what it says, verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Do you see it? The family is key to passing along the faith from father to children and from children to grandchildren and grandchildren right on down the line. We all have to be ready to pass the baton of the faith to our children and to our grandchildren. And in the process, in the process, we have got to teach our children that the God we serve is the most high God of heaven. He's not, as one writer called, the mush God, the M-U-S-H God. That author writes like this, the mush God is the Lord of the secular ritual, of the necessary but hypocritical forms and formalities. The mush God is a serviceable God, little g God, whose laws are chiseled not on tablets but on sand, open to amendment, qualification, and erasure. There is a God that will, that, that, this is a God that will compromise with you, make allowances for us, declare all wars holy and all peace hallowed. The mush God, he continues, saturates our society controls our culture, and dominates our domestic doors. 
This is the God that most people want to believe in because he will not offend them nor ask too much from them. But the one true God is not a mush God. He is a mighty God. The one true God is not a conformer to culture. He is the controller of creation. He's not an old man with a long beard sitting in a rocking, rocking chair in the sky, the big guy in the sky. He's the God of the heavens above, the earth beneath, and all things in between. He continues, he's a proven God. He's a powerful God. He's a personal God. He is the rock of ages who must shape any successful home. And all of us can say amen to that, right? We don't want our children to have a mush God. We want them to know the one true God, the mighty God of heaven. And it's our responsibility to introduce our children to this God. Now, there's three stages that parents have to pass through in the rearing of their children. The first stage is called the parent control stage. That's where you tell your children what to do and, and what to see. And you tell your children uh, you know, the things that they have to obey, and then you, you hold them accountable. That's the parent control stage. The second stage is the self-control stage. That's where, for the most part, your children know what to do, and they choose to do it for themselves. And aren't we thankful when our children grow up and get mature enough to do that? But then there's the most important stage where we want to move our children, and that's the God-control stage, where our children every single day are looking to this one true God, and they're asking him and living for him and seeking him and desiring him and surrendering to him, and they're under his control. And that's a part of the maturing process, moving from parental control to God control, so that when they leave our homes, even though they're not under our control, they understand they're still under God's control, and that's what the Shema is about. That's what this passage of Scripture we read here a few minutes ago is about. This is a 3,500-year-old text of Scripture, and yet it's just as relevant as it was 3,500 years ago to teach us how to move our children through that process to the place of a God-controlled kind of a life. I want to point out to you four things, things that there's many more than this, but I want to point out four things to you, four values, if I can, to you that you want to build into your home. This is a part of your plan. You want to build into your home if you're going to have your children to take the baton of faith and carry it for themselves. The first value has to do with a living example. The first value has to do with a living example. I want you to come back to our text for a moment, back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want you to read with me again. Follow along with me, verses 4 and 5, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now notice the next pronoun. You, parents, you adults, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You get it? The very first thing that our children need to see in our homes is a living example of the faith. They need to see that we are passionate ourselves about God when he talks about the heart, the soul, the strength. He's not trying to psychologically divide us up into parts. He's talking about that it should be from every part of our being. Our whole being is given over to God. We are passionate about the things of God. There can be no half-hearted effort when it comes to the matter of living the faith of Christ before your children. Three times he uses the word all, all, 
all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. What is he saying? He's saying to parents through whom the faith is going to be passed, you have got to be the living example. You have got to have a passion for God. You have to have a heart for the things of God. More often than not, our children will be passionate about the things that we're passionate about. Is it any wonder why your children love to talk about baseball? Because you're passionate about it. Or they love to talk about dance because you're passionate about it. Or they love to talk about education because you're passionate about it. And if you're not passionate about God and about the things of God, it's not likely that your children are going to be passionate about God and the things of God. I heard about a preacher that was talking to a group of kids one time in a Sunday school class. And he asked them the question, why do you love God? You know, this was one of those classes, you go around the circle, the kids sitting sort of their backs to the wall, and each child was being asked that question, why do you love God? And each one was giving an answer, why I love God. And it came to the last little boy in the line, and that little boy said, I don't know why I love God, preacher. I guess it just runs in my family. That's pretty good, isn't it? In the words of one of those popular games, bingo. Yeah, it runs in your family. If they have a living example, it's much more likely that your children are going to live out the faith for themselves. I heard about another little boy who was getting ready to go to Sunday school. His dad was hurrying him along, and the little boy was frustrated. You know how dad's pushing him along. Come on, son. Come on, son. Finally, the little boy in his frustration said, did you and mom have to go to Sunday school when you were little? And his dad replied, yes, son. We went every single week. And the little boy responded, well, I guess it won't do me much good either. You get it? You got the point? I mean, what you're passionate about, what's important to you, the way you live out your faith, your children are watching every single day. And I will tell you, when it comes to the faith, especially when they're younger, a lot of times it's more easily caught than it is taught. Our children must see a living, sincere, genuine faith that desires and seeks after him. They're not looking for perfect parents. There are no perfect parents, and there are no perfect homes. We all fail and falter at times. We all have our flaws. But they know whether you're genuine or not. They know whether you're sincere or not. And they know whether you're passionate about it or not, or whether you're simply going through the motions of your religiosity. You know what's interesting? In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 6, He talks about binding these scriptures to their hand and having frontlets before their eyes and then putting them on their doorposts. Those are called phylacteries. You can go online. You can watch it at YouTube, how they make them out of the hides of of, uh, kosher animals. And then they attach leather bands to them. These phylacteries, they fill with four specific verses of Scripture or passages of Scripture. They're rolled up in a special way. They're placed inside these little square boxes. And then they're strapped. The frontlet is strapped right here above their eyes because they're supposed to keep it before them. Not down here, but right up here in their minds, in their heads, right up here. And then the one that goes on their arm, on the left-hand arm, up here uh, above the elbow, It's wrapped, and the the leather band is wrapped all the way down through the fingers because it's closest to the heart, the head and the heart. The scriptures are constantly supposed to be influencing our heads and our hearts. Uh, They had uh, what they called mezuzahs. I I bought one of these. I couldn't afford the phylacteries. They were like 200 bucks. I didn't have that much money. Mary wouldn't give it to me. (laughs) 
But I, I purchased one of these. I used to have one. I couldn't find it, and I purchased it. Inside, you put the scroll, and then it gets on your door. It goes on your doorpost. They put them not only, not only on the outside doorpost, they put them on the inside doorpost. And when you walk in, you touch it. In the different doorways, you touch it. Why? You're identifying. You're wearing this. You're identifying. This is my God, and these are the things I follow. What he teaches is what I follow. You're showing your allegiance. Now, there's some debate as to whether this was supposed to be literal as they took it or whether it was supposed to be symbolic. But the rabbis took it literally, and they began making these boxes and putting these scriptures in the boxes. But here's the problem. The way it is with a lot of things that are, are rituals, it, it soon lost its reality. As a matter of fact, when you get to the New Testament talking about the phylacteries, this, this is what it says, Jesus speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what Jesus said. But all their works they do to be seen by men, to be seen by men, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments, another part that symbolized things about God. They make their phylacteries large. In other words, rather than making them the smaller box that was worn above their eyes and on their, on the, uh, their arms, they made them as large as possible. They weren't this big, but you get the idea. They made them large as possible because when they walked around, it looked impressive. Boy, how pious those scribes and Pharisees are. But do you hear what Jesus is saying to them? Jesus is saying, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You, you got your mezuzah on your doorpost, and you're wearing these enlarged phylacteries on your head and on your arm, but you're not even following God yourself. You're not sincere. You're not genuine. You've got a ritual, but you've lost the reality that that ritual is supposed to point to. You've lost that reality. Parents, we have to live before our children in such a way that they see that we love God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our strength. And in the New Testament, when Jesus quotes that verse, Jesus adds the word mind. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There isn't to be any aspect of our lives where we're not seeking to love God with all of our hearts. Now, let's just be honest. I'm not there yet. I'm still a work in progress, and I bet that you're not there yet either. You're still a work in progress. But our children aren't looking for people to be perfect, but they're looking for people to be sincere and genuine. And the very first thing that we have to give to our children is a living example of somebody who is passionate about God, passionate about his church, passionate about Jesus, passionate about his word. Dr. Richard Strauss is a pastor that I like to read. He's an author as well. He died of multiple myeloma back in 1993. This is what he writes. Modern psychologists, sociologists, and educators agree. Our children are what we make them. They are the sum total of what we contribute to their lives. The training we provide will affect their ability to get along with other people. The genuineness of their Christian testimony and service, the caliber of work they do, the quality of home they establish in almost every other area of their lives. You have such an incredible influence. Don't squander that influence by being less than genuine and sincere. You say, well, I'm not, I'm not really passionate about the Lord. Then you need to get before God and say, God, help me. God, help me to have a revival in my soul. 
because there is nothing more important than living out my faith before my children so that my children will see that priority of, above everything else, priority is my God and the things my God teaches me. The second value I want you to see is what we'll call a good environment. Not only must there be a living example, there must be a good environment. When I say a good environment, I'm not talking about uh, improving uh, the, the air quality and the water quality. I'm talking about a good spiritual environment. You know, one of the things that stands out to me in this passage is how commonplace, and I don't mean mundane by that, but I mean regular. They did this regularly. How commonplace the discussion about God and the scriptures were in everyday life. Just go back with me to verse 7, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them. You'll talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. I don't know about you, but that just about covers everything, doesn't it? It describes an ongoing conversation that begins when you get up, it ends when you go to bed, and it permeates every part of your day. In other words, there's not to be a single area of our lives or our children's lives where we don't desire to bring the Scripture to bear. We don't want to segregate the Scripture out for Sundays only. We want to integrate the Scripture into every single thing we're doing. I'm not suggesting that you have to give a verse of Scripture every time you're talking to your kids. But there ought to be a spiritual emphasis in your home and in your parenting style where you're bringing your children to the Lord over and over and you're creating an environment where God can be at work in your life and God can be at work in their lives. That's the environment. Years ago, there was a fast food restaurant that used bright, gaudy colors in order to, to psychologically move patrons along so they'd eat faster and they'd leave quicker. Now, that's the environment, right? That's the environment. And that makes sense in a fast food restaurant. It's a fast food restaurant. You're not supposed to be going and stay there all day. You're not supposed to be sitting there just whiling away your time in the restaurant. That's, that's the environment. And the environment informed and reinforced their goal. You get it? Do you get what I'm saying? There's got to be this spiritual environment that informs and reinforces your goal where you're talking about the Lord, you're sharing about Christ. You're not talking about him just when you're having a family devotion. You're not talking about him just when you come to church on Sunday. You're talking about the Lord and his word on a regular, consistent, constant basis all the time. Let me put it to you another way. Where do you feel relaxed and calm? Where is your happy place? My happy place, at least one of my happy places, is on the deck of my condo. I don't own it. I just, we just rent it. On the deck of my condo, high enough up so that I can see the beach. I don't have to be on the sand. I don't have to be in the water. I just want to hear it, and I want to see it, and I want to smell it. Anybody with me? That's my happy place. Do you know why you feel that way about those places that you're describing in your mind right now? You know why you feel that way? Because the environment in those places is conducive to it being your happy place. The environment. I'm trying to emphasize the importance of environment. Think about it in a different metaphor. Think about a greenhouse where you put your plants so that they can grow. Think about 
the importance of that greenhouse. It creates an environment that is healthy for the plants so the plants will be able to grow. Our homes and our families are supposed to be spiritual greenhouses where God and his word are so real and vital that our children think nothing is amiss when we speak frequently about spiritual things and apply the Bible to every aspect of life. That's environment. A living example, a good spiritual environment. Now, I'm not suggesting you go home and put up a bunch of pictures with Bible verses on it. That wouldn't hurt anything. But if that just becomes your ritual and it doesn't point to a routine that brings you to the reality of God, then that isn't going to help you any. We're talking about bringing God into everyday life and talking about him through every aspect of life. When you get up, when you go through the day, when you sit down to eat, when you go to bed at night, God's just part of the conversation. He is the environment. We're constantly talking about God. There's another word for what I'm talking about. This good environment is called, are you ready? Y'all with me? It's called discipleship. Parents are supposed to be discipling their children to Christ. You're talking about God and his word in this relationship that you have with your children. Think about how Jesus, discipled his, how Jesus taught his disciples. He did so when he got up, as he walked through the day, when he sat down, when he retired at night. Jesus used every opportunity as an environment to help his disciples grow spiritually. And that's how he trained the men that changed the world. That's how he trained the men that turned the world upside down. My kids would probably tell you, both of my children, my youngest is about to be 40, so both of my children are about to be in their 40s. Hard to believe it to be this young and have children both in their 40s, right? Both of my children would probably tell you that they got sick of hearing me say, well, what does the Bible say about that? Does the scripture have something to say to us about this? Well, this is what the Bible would have us to do in this situation. <laughs> I know sometimes they were, I, I, they've told me, sometimes they, they were frustrated with me. Dad, I don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. But you know what? That's what you have to do. You know, the, the creating this environment where Scripture is brought to bear on every part of their life so that they understand every aspect of their life is to be impacted. It becomes a spiritual greenhouse. It becomes a discipleship relationship where you're constantly talking about the Lord and about the things of the Lord and about the Word of the Lord. You're, you're making sure that that happy place, that environment, is the place where Jesus is brought all the time. I mean, a simple reading of the Gospels reveals that these disciples of Christ failed and they struggled often, but Jesus was patient and he was persistent. He taught, he taught them over meals. He taught them by stories. We call them parables. He took them to ministry opportunities. He spoke truth to them when they were on the sea and when they were on the seashore and in dozens of other opportunities. He kept bringing the scripture to bear over the life of God, to bear on these, these men over and over and over again. That's a, that's a good environment where we can shepherd our children's hearts. It's a life approach where we, we have a relationship with our children and we don't segregate God out, but we bring God into every aspect of it. So let me tell you something from a father's perspective and a grandfather's perspective. Some of my best conversations that I've had in the course of 
raising my children and watching my grandchildren grow up, conversations about God and morality and truth, uh, about purpose and destiny and meaning, some of the greatest conversations I've had with my children and with my grandchildren thus far have happened in the daily grind of living life. You just saw an opportunity to bring God and his word into a conversation, to be able to show them how the scripture and how God impacts their lives in these various areas. I'm not suggesting, again, that you have to have every conversation and quote a Bible verse, but I am suggesting that you have to be intentional in this matter of creating the spiritual environment where you're teaching your children about God and teaching them the spiritual truths that they can build their life on. If you don't do it, They won't have a foundation. They won't have a rock foundation. They'll be building on the sand, building on the sand. Let me just give you one more metaphor, see if I can make sure you get what I'm talking about, about a good environment. Who do you think will be the healthiest person physically? The person that's a sporadic dieter or the person that develops a healthy lifestyle of eating? Well, the obvious answer to that is the one who develops a lifestyle, healthy lifestyle of eating, right? If our children can have a healthy lifestyle of hearing the word of God, not just at church, but over and over in our homes and in life and every day, they're seeing it applied to scripture, it's a lot more likely that your children are going to grow up to be healthy. If we give our children a, a diet, a daily diet of healthy spiritual things, his word, his love, his grace, his presence, and so forth, we can show them the reality of who he is, and we can show them the reality of how he works in life. Did you know this, parents? You're shaping your children every single day. You're shaping how they see themselves. You're shaping how they see the world. You're shaping how they see their lives. And you're shaping their spirit, their spiritual life as well. Make sure, moms and dads, that you create that good environment. There's got to be a living example. There's got to be a good environment. Number three, there's got to be a thorough education. I'm not talking about an education at Marshall or WVU or some other uh, university. I'm talking about a thorough biblical education. Come back with me to the text. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. He says, you shall teach them diligently. See those three words, teach them diligently. Teach diligently is the translation of a single Hebrew word. It means to chisel. Eugene Merrill, who's a Hebrew scholar, uh, defines it this way. It's the image of the engraver of a monument who takes hammer and chisel in hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. You get it? We're to be engraving into the hearts and lives of our children the truth of Scripture. We're giving them a living example. We're bringing God into everyday life, talking about him and the things of God into everyday life. And we're making sure that we teach them the Bible. We teach them the truth of God. This word, it says teach diligently, also can be used in some context to repeat to repeat like you do with a chisel, hit it over and over again while you're chiseling. It's the same idea. You're engraving into their hearts. And what is it they're to teach diligently? He says, teach them diligently. Well, in this particular context, the first thing he wants them to teach is the Ten Commandments. They're found in chapter 5. Hey, by the way, that's not a bad place to start, parents. Teaching your children the Ten Commandments. Are you with me? 
Teaching your children the Ten Commandments, that's not a bad place to start. But then he goes on, teach them the judgments of God, the statutes of God. And and here's the point. We've got to make every effort to teach our children the Word of God. And here's the thing. In Moses' day, they they didn't have but just the Pentateuch. Just those first five books. If they had those, they had the Pentateuch. That's all they had. You know what we have? We have the inspired, inerrant word of the living God from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Isn't that incredible? We have the whole book. And we open this book and we instruct our children and we teach our children in the things of God. Now, I know, I know immediately what's going through some of your minds. Some of you are saying, well, I'm just not qualified. I'm just not capable to do that. That's why I bring them to church. Well, I'm going to use another illustration to help you learn what... I want you to grasp. I want to put a math formula on the screen. I want you to look at it for a moment. Your purpose is to find out the value of X. The value of X. The answer to the question is six. You've already got the answer, but you don't know the value of X. That's an algebra equation. Uh, how many of you are looking at it and saying, I didn't come to church to do math? We had a great algebra teacher. I shouldn't say that. We had a great football coach who was an algebra teacher. He was my algebra one and algebra two teacher. So when I saw this formula, I was, well, I had a lot of X's and O's on the screen. I was ready to run plays rather than figure out the X's in this formula. Have you got it figured out yet? You know what you can do with that formula? Well, first of all, you can take it to a professional and you can say, give me an answer. You know where I got that formula from? I got it from Dr. Paula Lucas. See, he's a professor of math education at the University of Marshall University. She gave me that equation, and I went to her. I said, okay, tell me, tell me the answer to this question. She had no problem giving me the answer. You can do that. Uh, you can do a second thing. You can get a group of people together that maybe have a little more understanding than you do, and you can say, can you help me find the answer to this equation? And there'll probably be some people in that, uh, in that group of people that'll help you to solve that equation. Or, or... You can learn how to solve it yourself so that you can teach your children how to solve these kinds of equations. Now, here's what I did. When uh, Dr. Lucas sent me this equation, I looked at it for 30 seconds or so. (laughs) Um, And the first thing I did is I said, will you give me the answer? I asked the professional. (laughs) She didn't give me the answer at first, by the way. The second thing I did is I took it to the ladies in the office. And I said, can y'all help me find, you know, what X is? Can you help me solve this equation? And they figured it out, but didn't tell me how. (laughs) But then I called Dr. Lucas last night, and I said, Dr. Lucas, I want you to walk me through how you work out this equation so that I can learn it for myself. And I learned some things that I either knew and forgot or didn't ever know. The minus sign can be changed to a positive. You change it to a negative seven and so forth. By the way, X equals one half. X equals one half. How many of you got it without me telling you? All right. There's the experts. It equals one half. Now look. When it comes to spiritual truth, you can bring your children to the church and let the professional tell them. You can take your children to 
a group of people and they can work it out together with them and teach them spiritual things. Or you moms and dads can do what you ought to do. Learn how to understand the scriptures for yourself. If you just come to church and you listen to how I preach, you will get some kind of an idea on how you get things out of the Bible. I am not a genius. <laughs> nobody, had to, nobody even disagreed with me on that. <laughs> I'm not a genius. There are some things that you can do to figure out how to understand the Scripture so that you can impart them to your children. The most painful thing that's ever been said to me, and I've had a lot of painful things said to me, was said by a young woman who was coming to church and quit coming, and she said, I just can't understand your preaching. You are too complicated. I'm the most simple-minded person I know. I don't even understand what complexity is. I thought I was being as easy as possible to understand. But I want you to understand something. If you don't have any exposure to the Scripture, when you come to church, it may feel like you're in a high school when you need to be in kindergarten. But if you'll stay there, you'll soon learn some things that'll help you to move out of kindergarten into first grade and learn some things to move out of first grade to get to second. And those were two of the best years of my life, second grade. Then move out of second grade into third grade and up into middle school and into high school. You gotta start somewhere. You gotta learn some things. Moms and dads, you gotta give them a living example. You gotta give them a good environment. You gotta give them a thorough education. And you have gotta learn how to take the scriptures yourself and apply them to their lives, interpret them, and apply them to their lives. Hey, I'm, I'm going to say this calmly. Let me say it calmly. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not ever going to do it anyway. You're not ever going to do it anyway. Here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter how much else you may give your children if you don't give them a real love for God. What good is it to raise your children in the finest home, to give them the finest education, to see that they have the finest job, to help them marry the finest person, to enable them to have the finest career, to help them achieve the finest position in life, to be buried in the finest casket and given the finest funeral and laid in the finest grave. If when your children stand before the God of heaven, they don't know who he is. And they've never loved him for themselves. God intends for the home to be the university of spiritual learning for our children. A living example, a good environment, a thorough education, and finally, and quickly, we have to give our children a moving experience. You say, what do you mean by a moving experience? I mean, we've got to see that our children don't see God in the abstract, that they see God in the reality of every single day. That's why you're talking about the Scripture all the time. That's why you're bringing God to bear in every conversation or at least many conversations through the course of the day. You're keeping God before them on a regular basis, but we have to make sure that we don't teach God in the abstract. 
that he's not just a concept in a Bible somewhere, that he isn't living, that he isn't active, that he isn't near, that he doesn't do miracles. We have to make sure that our children recognize that God is alive. Look over in chapter 6 to verse 20. Chapter 6, verse 20, where we didn't read. Listen to what he says. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. By the way, what's he doing? He's showing, he's giving to his, his children a, a, a moving experience. I, I want to tell you the story of how God worked. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us up from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. Do you hear what he's doing? He's saying God's alive. As a matter of fact, when you go back through the history of Israel, there's pillars, there's piles of rocks, there's monuments, there's altars, there's all kinds of landmarks. Can you imagine when they crossed the Jordan River, they took 12 rocks and put them in the middle of the river that would eventually be covered up by the water, and they took 12 rocks out of the water over onto the Jordan's, over, over onto the Canaan side and piled them up. Can you imagine taking your children and saying, you know where those rocks came from, John? Those rocks came out of the middle of that river. Daddy, how did you, how did you get those rocks out of the, Look at the size of those rocks. How did you carry those rocks out of that flowing stream? How would you do that, Dad? John, God stopped the waters. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. The priests carrying the ark put their feet into the water, and the waters just stopped. And the ground was dry, and we, a million and a half of us, walked across the Jordan River. And once we were all on the other side, before they put the ark and moved it up out of the river, they went back down in, and they got these big rocks, these big boulders, and they put them over here. I want you to know God's alive, John. They went to those places, and they said, Children, let me show you. Your God's not some abstract concept somewhere in a book. Your God is a living, powerful God who's near you every single day. There were some seminary students who were asked how parents can perpetuate the knowledge of God in their children. And in the class, there was a young man whose wife had grown up in Brazil. And he related the story about how her parents had practiced the custom of writing down evidences of God's faithfulness to their family and then putting those little pieces of paper inside a matchbox. Now, not those little tiny boxes, those big wooden boxes. Putting those pieces of paper inside those matchboxes. And at the end of each year, they would glue that year's matchboxes onto the others from the preceding years. He said that his wife, while she was growing up, saw her parents literally construct a small house made out of those matchboxes. And whenever the family ran into trouble... They would open up one or more of those matchboxes and they would read the record of God's faithfulness and be encouraged. I heard the story of a family that has a gallon jar up on their countertop. They do something very similar. When God moves in a way that's uh, in, in the family's life and God does something for that family, they write it on that piece of paper, that slip of paper, and they put it in that gallon jar. 
And when they're going through tough times, hard times hit, they reach into that jar and they bring some out and they read, God's been faithful in the past. God will be faithful in the present. You know what they were doing? They were giving their children a moving experience. They were saying God isn't some abstract con uh, construct that's in, a, uh, in, in print on, a, on the pages of a book. God is real, and he's with you every single day of your life, and he gives to you these kinds of moving experiences. Do you ever sit down with your children and say, you remember when God did this? Remember when we prayed about that? You ever do that? I was, I keep a journal. It's all online now, but I keep a journal. <clears throat> and my, my computerized journal brings up, you know, what happened on that day the previous years that I've been doing the electronic journal, which is, I don't know, eight or nine, ten years, something like that. Brings up this, this you know, what happened the days on that day years previous. One day, it brought up something related to my son. And I read what it was and how God had done something. And I called him on the phone. I said, J.D., you remember this? You remember what God did? You remember this, J.D.? Now, he was in the middle of work, and he said, Dad, I don't have time to talk to you. <laughs> he didn't say that, really. I'm just kidding. And he was busy. Do you know what I was trying to do as imperfectly as I did it? I was trying to remind my children God is alive. My children are adults. They're walking with God and they're living for God. They love God. They're serving God in local churches. But here's the thing. Sometimes it's good for grandparents to say, let me remind you. Let me remind you. Let me remind you what God did. The first value is a living example. <clears throat> the second value is a good environment, a good spiritual environment. The third value is a thorough biblical education in you parents should be teachers in that university. And the fourth value is a moving experience, making God real to your children every single day. Now let me help make God real to you. Do you know how you make God real to you? You come to know his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you put your faith in Jesus to be your personal savior. You believe that his death on the cross of Calvary and his resurrection from the grave was to pay the penalty of your sins and my sins. And you come to Jesus and you put your faith in Jesus. And in those moments, God takes away our sins and God gives to us the gift of eternal life. And God takes up residence within us through the Holy Spirit. Now you're walking every single day with the presence of God in your life that you cannot have if you haven't received Jesus. Jesus.